Hi, friends. Welcome to the online gathering of Cedar Mill Bible Church. This is where we gather together as a church family, even at a distance, but there's a togetherness um, to this moment for us, and I hope that you feel that today. Today, we're continuing our series that we're calling Resurrection Implications, which is really just us exploring what sort of impact does the empty tomb, does the gospel of Jesus have on us as followers of Christ in our everyday living? Like what are the implications of this great news? And today we're looking at a passage from the book of Colossians. And the reason this is such a good fit is because the book of Colossians actually does exactly what our series is all about. Paul writes the letter to the church at Colossi, called Colossians, and he, uh, he talks for two chapters about Jesus, about who Jesus is, how he's God in the flesh for us to see. He says, the son is the image of the invisible God. He says, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And then he talks about Jesus as creator of the universe. He says, he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He tells us that through Jesus, we've been reconciled to God. He says, once you, that's you and me as followers of Christ, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. So for two chapters, Paul like lobs these huge truths, these awesome theological ideas to his readers. And he doesn't just do this so that they'll have good theology. He's setting them up. His, his goal, his vision, his hope and prayer is that Jesus would then shape every part of their lives. In his own words, he says it this way. He hopes that we may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. That's really what our series is all about. And so after two chapters of talking about Jesus, Paul transitions and now he's going to talk about resurrection implications. Here's what he says. This is Colossians chapter three, starting in verse one. Since then, you have been raised with Christ Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now we're going to look at a few more verses, but before we go much further, I want to tell you kind of where we're headed today. Because we're asking three questions. One, what is Paul talking about here? Like, what's the main point of this passage? What's he really getting at? Second, how does it work? Like, give us some practical examples, Paul, of how this plays out in our lives. And then finally, where does this play out? Where do we see this playing out in our lives and specifically in the life of the church? So here we go. Question one, what is Paul talking about here? What's he driving at? Right away, Paul wants us to understand, first and foremost, that resurrection implications start on the inside. The implications, the greatest, most powerful implications for the gospel, the good news of Jesus, are not out there, they are in here. In fact, he's saying that if you truly want to be a follower of Jesus, 
on the exterior, it better first happen on the interior. Jesus himself talks about this very thing in Luke chapter six. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man or woman brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart. An evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. What is, what is Jesus saying? He's saying the transformed life starts on the inside. Notice that in our passage today, Paul says two things in these opening verses. He says, set your hearts on things above. That's verse one. And then in verse two, which is by the way, our memory verse today, we're memorizing a verse every single week. Here's our memory verse. It's verse two. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. I gave you an easy one this, this week. It's simple. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You see, sometimes in our world, we separate the things of the heart or our emotions from the things of our mind, our, our logic or thinking, but the scriptures don't do that. And the scriptures, our thinking and our feelings are sort of swirled together. They're kind of constantly running inside of us, running through our minds, running through our brains, and together they are guiding our lives. The scriptures say, long before we speak or act or do something, we have thought and felt and pondered it in our minds. And so Paul is saying central and essential to living a Christian life is this. The thoughts and feelings you allow to run through your mind should be surrendered to the control of Jesus. I'll say that again. The thoughts and feelings you allow to run through your mind must be surrendered to the control of Jesus. See, Paul's not just telling us here to spend more time thinking about heaven. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Does not mean like think less about the world. Think less about bills. Think less about kids. Think, think less about your grades. Think, think less about vacations or the news or how things are going in the NBA playoffs. No, you know, Paul's not saying think less about those things and instead think more about angels and harps and clouds and streets of gold. No, that's not the message. He's saying, whatever we're thinking about in this world, we must think about it in a way that aligns with how Jesus would think about it. We must learn to have what Corinthians calls the mind of Christ. I mean, can you imagine having the mind of Christ? The thoughts of Christ, the emotions of Christ, the perspective of Christ. Can you imagine that your, your understandings and your perceptions of things happening in the world would just automatically fully be in line with Jesus and how he would approach the world? Imagine if when someone hurt you, your immediate thoughts were not to hurt them back or to run and hide and pout and cry, but to honestly and courageously Seek authentic reconciliation. What if that was just the instincts of your mind and heart? Imagine if when somebody else succeeded, you saw someone 
having great success, instead of comparing yourself to them or feeling jealous or insecure the way we sometimes do, that your automatic and natural emotional and mental response would just be authentic joy for that person. Imagine if when you sinned, when you failed, when you blew it, you didn't respond and you weren't even tempted to respond by excusing your behavior or beating yourself up, but instead you felt led to confess openly, honestly to God and to others, and then to move forward with contrition to make things right and live another way. Imagine, friends, if these were the natural thoughts and feelings of your inner world. Imagine just always feeling confident instead of anxious, generous instead of selfish, rested instead of fatigued, patient instead of irritable, generous instead of selfish, loved instead of lonely. Imagine what a mind sort of bent that way would be like. A few, a few weeks ago, we talked about how as followers of Jesus, we don't do this on our own strength. And so the message today is not try harder to think better thoughts. No, the message today is the same as it was a few weeks back. It's actively surrender, purposefully submit, intentionally depend on Jesus to transform your thinking, your feeling, your inner life. And if you remember the image we used was a sailboat because we can't power a sailboat on our own, but we can participate. We can participate by putting the sails up. And here in our passage today, Paul is telling us that the sails of our spiritual life go up first and foremost in our brains. That's where we set the sails of the spiritual life in our thinking. And that little phrase that he uses, set your minds. It's the first phrase of our memory verse, set your minds. In Greek, Those words are written as a constant and continuous action we do over and over again. In other words, Paul is literally saying, keep setting your minds. Keep setting the sails of transformation on the things of God. Keep adjusting, he's saying, the inner part of your life, your thinking and feeling over and over and over again to be constantly aligned with him. And this makes sense in our analogy, right? Because you don't, set the sails of a sailboat and then just kind of lay down on the deck and just hope for the best. Now, if you're really a sailor, you're constantly shifting and moving and tightening and loosening so that you can catch the wind in just the right way. That is what this passage is about. Constantly aligning our thinking, surrendering it over and over again to Jesus. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So, How does this work? I mean, what does that look like practically? Verse five. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its 
creator. Now, at first glance, it may seem to you that Paul is simply giving Christians a list of do's and don'ts. Here's some things specifically you should not do if you follow Jesus. But actually he's doing something different here. He's doing something more. He's showing us how sin works. You know, one of the tools that I have in my garage, maybe you have one of these, it's a weed whacker. You know what a weed whacker is? It's kind of that, that, that long, like, buzzy wand and it kind of and it, at the very bottom of it is like this plastic cord that spins around real fast. And as it spins around, it sort of shaves away grass and takes care of all your weeds, right? I've got one of those. I've got a weed whacker. Maybe you have one too. Mine's an electric, you know, it's good for the environment. At any rate, I use it a lot because in Oregon, when it rains, constantly and all spring and the weeds in your flower beds just keep coming up over and over and over again. And maybe your wife is telling you, get out there and get the weeding done. I can grab my weed whacker. I can go out there and I can just, you know, buzz down all those weeds in my flower beds in in a matter of minutes. And with a weed whacker in my hand, it literally takes no time at all. It is so convenient. There's no struggle. There's no toil it just like demolishes them instantly. But what's the problem with that? The problem with that approach is that even though it looks like the weeds are gone, the weeds are not really gone. The tops are gone. The parts that we can see are gone, but the roots are still there. And friends, those weeds will be back. You see, if you really want those weeds to be gone, then you've got to do the harder work, the more tedious work, the more intentional work of pulling up the roots. And that is what Paul is talking to us about here. He's saying, if you really want to kill sin in your life, then you've got to get down to the roots of that sin in your life. You'll notice that he offers us two lists in this section, one list in verse five and another in verse eight. The first list is an example of personal sin, of how personal sin works in our lives. And the second is an example of relational sin, how relational sin works amongst us. And they work in very similar ways. Let's look at both lists real quickly. Both, by the way, are showing us how the outward manifestations of sin actually have roots that run deep inside of our minds and hearts. Put to death, he says, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Listen, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. In this list, Paul starts with the word sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. It's sort of the general, most general term for any and all sexual sin. Any sexual activity outside of marriage is sort of covered by this word. And Paul uses this word here because he's not targeting a specific sexual sin. He's saying the outward expression of any and all sexual sin is connected and works in this way. He's saying there's roots that go deeper. If you see any sexual sin in someone's life or in your own life, there are roots that run deeper. And now Paul is going to start to describe the root ball that sits underneath sexual, any sexual immorality. Impurity, he says. 
Impurity is communicating the idea of unclean thoughts. The word literally means unclean. And here's what he's saying. He's saying behind every sinful sexual act is a mind that has been thinking about, dwelling on, imagining, and fantasizing about sinful sexual things. You see, what Paul is saying to you and me is some of you are very careful not to do certain things, not to do certain things outwardly with your eyes, with your hands, with your life, right? But, but you're very loose with what is happening in here. You're very loose with what you are free to think about in your brain. And Paul is saying that is a recipe for disaster because those are the thoughts that grow sexual immorality behavior. Next is the word lust. It's a better translation is actually passion. And the idea here is that we all have these, these passions, these, these longings, and, and they are God-given, but they have oftentimes been twisted by sin. And when we don't discern God-given passions from passions that have been distorted by this world, friends, we're in big trouble. This one is especially hard for us because in our culture, the message is, if you want it, it's probably right for you and no one should tell you otherwise. If if it's a real desire of your heart, you do not need to evaluate whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, distorted or not from God or not. It is yours and you have the right to pursue it. Paul is saying something different here. He's saying, stop and consider. Is this passion, is this longing really from the Lord? See, that thought process sits underneath sexual sin. Then he says, evil desires. Here's something else that's part of the root ball of sexual immorality, evil desires. This is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully with evil desires, same word, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now he's not, he's not saying lust and adultery are the same thing. He's saying allowing evil desires to fester in your mind is a sure recipe to grow some sexual immorality in your life. Leave those roots around long enough and bad stuff's going to pop up. And then Paul says greed, which is kind of weird, isn't it? Like all of a sudden you get all these sexual words and all of a sudden greed And we think of greed in relation to money and possessions. But Paul says at the root of sexual sin is greed. I mean, you think about it for just a minute, it does make sense because greed is simply the desire for more. (laughs) I just need more, more than I have, right? And then more than that. It's about, greed is about desires that can't be satisfied, Greed is about appetites that do not want to stop, that don't want limits, that don't want to be restrained. That's greed. And so Paul is saying here, at the root of sin, and in this case, sexual sin, is this appetite that wants more. 
that refuses to be satisfied with God's portion, with God's limits, with God's boundaries. At the root of sin is buying into this idea. Here's greed. Here's, here's the idea of greed kind of growing in your life. I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. I should be allowed to have it. Now, you can apply that attitude to another helping of dessert after dinner, right? <laughs> I deserve that extra scoop of ice cream. I've had a hard day, right? But, but you can also apply it to indulging in sexual activities that you should not engage in. That's greed. When the idea of greed takes root, sexual immorality is soon to follow. And then Paul says, all of this stuff, all of these, all this entire root ball is just growing in the soil of idolatry. Here's what idolatry is. To look to something in this world other than God for meaning and purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment. To look to something in this world other than God for meaning and purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment. And in this passage, by the way, written over 2,000 years ago, it's how amazing the Bible is, Paul perfectly predicts that we, in our world, America 2022, here and now, will be tempted to look to sex instead of God. It's like the, the most timeless passage ever. You're going to be tempted in your world, no matter where you live and when you live there, to be to idolize sex. It's so true in our world because listen, this is what our culture says. What defines your identity? Your sexuality. That's what our world says. Your sexuality is the core of who you are. What gives you ultimate fulfillment? Our culture's answer, great sexual experiences. You want to be really fulfilled? You find great sexual experiences. What gives you value in our world? Here, here's at least one of the answers. Like, like if this, if this was like a game show. It'd be like, survey says, and this would be on the board. Being sexually desirable. If you're sexually, I mean, think about this for young people. Think about how much time and energy we in our cultural, culture spend trying to be more sexually desirable. Why? Because if you're sexually desirable, then you have value. That's the message of our world. Here's another question. What is the most pleasurable thing in our world? What, is like, what brings you the most satisfaction and fulfillment and pleasure? World says, great sex. You see, this is idolatry. This is like replacing God with sex because if you take those same questions and you answer them biblically, every time the answers are about God. See, what does the scripture say about your identity? That you're a child of God. What does the scripture say about ultimate fulfillment? Deep connection with Jesus is where you find ultimate fulfillment. What did the scriptures say about your value and what gives you value? That Christ loves you so much that he gave his life for you. That's why you have value. Where do you find satisfaction and deep pleasure? From knowing the peace and joy of walking every day with Jesus. You see, that's Jesus on the throne. But sex wants to be an idol, a false god in our lives. And as soon as idolatry takes over, as soon as you start to believe the message of our culture that sex is actually king, sex is where it's at, now the roots of sexual sin have some place to grow in your life. 
You see, Paul is showing us how this works, how sin takes root and starts to take over. He's saying, it's not enough to just, just to take a weed whacker and whack away the bad behaviors. We must, as followers of Christ, go all the way down to the inner thoughts and beliefs and feelings and convictions and root this sin out of ourselves. That's what he's saying. And then he shifts and he gives us another example. This time, not a personal example like sexual sin. This time he gives us a relational example. Listen to it. But now you must also, he says, rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the, in the image of its creator. See, in the last list, Paul started kind of from the outward and he worked his way down into the roots. This time he starts inside, down at the roots and works his way out. He's doing it a little differently. And he's saying this, he's saying, do you know what happens when you harbor anger, rage, malice, and slander in your heart? When you let those thoughts sort of spin around and simmer in your mind? Do you know what happens? Yeah, he's saying it's no surprise that out of those roots grow the weeds of filthy language and lies. And by filthy language, he's not, he doesn't mean cuss words. He means language. He's talking about language that tears people down. Language that destroys others, that destroys relationships and community. And again, Paul is saying, don't be deceived. This is how sin works. It starts on the inside and it stews around in our hearts. And then one day the dandelions of slander come popping out of your mouth and they didn't come from nowhere. Now, let me get to the final question here because this is an important one for us. Where does this play out? If this is how sin works, right? If it wants to get down deep inside of us and take root in our minds and in our hearts, then where does it play out? Where does the sin start to pop out in our lives? Where does the sin start to pop out in the church? And Paul kind of points something out that's so important here. Here's the last verse of this section. Verse 11, Colossians 3:11. Here, he says, and he's talking about the church. Here in the body of Christ, in the family of believers, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You see, I, I know it's hard for us today to imagine, but in the ancient world, people were very divided. There, there was barriers all over the place between people, between like the, the Jews and the Gentiles, us versus them, right? People who were circumcised versus people who were uncircumcised. Like they did this and they should do that and they shouldn't for, I mean, there's just all this sort of polarization happening in the early church. Again, I know it's hard for us to relate, but the worst, the worst people were the Greeks. The Greeks who had come to Christ, they kind of come with this way of thinking because the Greeks were taught to look down on anyone who was not like them. Anyone who wasn't Greek was beneath them, especially, especially those who didn't speak Greek. In fact, the word here that Paul uses, barbarian, it literally means a man who says barbar. It's like a slang 
sort of degrading slang word for those who couldn't speak the Greek language. And then he talks about the Scythians. The Scythians were notoriously known as the lowest of the barbarians. Like they're more barbarian than even barbarians are. That's a Scythian. Scythians were like, like just a little bit above wild beasts. That's how Greeks thought about them. And what Paul is doing here is he's showing them how, how when the, the roots of relational sin are allowed to remain in our lives and in our midst, they create judgment and division and classism and racism, even in the body of Christ. You see, Paul is, is challenging these first century Christ followers and he's challenging you and he's challenging me. He's saying it's not enough to simply accept one another on a surface level, but instead he's saying we must dig deep down into the root thoughts and feelings that divide us and kill this division on a root level. This is huge. This is huge. You see, what we too often do in the church is a cheap version of this. Too often in the church, we love to talk about unity. And I, and I love unity. I think unity is huge. Unity is important. I talk about unity. Unity is a good thing. But sometimes we settle for, let's just be united. Let's be together. Let's be one in Christ. And we leave it there. But friends, for Paul, what he's saying is, that's like taking a weed whacker out into your flower bed. And this is why, friends, with all the talk of unity in the church, Christians are still amongst the most divided people in the world. Because we've used our weed whacker a lot, but the division and the judgment and the classism and the racism, it just keeps growing back. This is why in the church, we're divided all over the place, divided on theology, we're divided on worship style, divided on how to dress for worship. We're divided on gender and on politics and on pandemic procedures. And we are certainly divided on race. You see, we talk, we talk about unity and we cut down the dandelions, but as soon as another issue comes up, as soon as pressure gets applied from this world that we live in, those weeds are quick to grow back in our midst. You see, what Paul is calling for here is not more surface level talk about unity, but for a deeper dive into what has and continues to create division. I'm gonna say that again. What Paul is calling for here is not more surface level talk about unity, but for a deeper dive into what has and continues to create division. He's saying to this church and he's saying to, to us, to you and me and to our church, look real, real deep down and evaluate people, the thoughts and feelings and beliefs and convictions that we are allowing to remain such that division can continue to grow in our midst time and time again. He's saying, let's, let's get our gardening gloves on and do some weeding so that we can truly be together. You see, with, with the racially motivated shooting in Buffalo this week, here's what I believe. Here's what I believe this passage says. And here's what I believe this passage calls us to, that we as Christians should be the first people to ask this question. 
What is still living in us as a nation that these things continue to happen? And furthermore, here's what Christians should ask. How can we as Christ followers be a part of the healing, be a part of killing those roots, pulling up this deep-seated racism amongst us? But aren't we just one in Christ, Pastor Dave? Yes, we are. We are one in Christ, but there are some roots down in us that are still dividing us. And friends, I don't have the answers to all of that. I certainly don't have time to unpack them in this message. I don't even think there are easy answers. There's hard, hard gardening work to do here. But I do think that as Christians, we must be the ones who are courageous enough to ask the questions. Here's a quote that, I read this week and it struck me and I think it speaks to this reality, this call to go deeper and do the hard work of of pulling out the sin in our midst. Here's a quote. This is in response to the shootings in Buffalo. In a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. Think about that for a minute. It's not enough to just be non-racist, just sort of like cut the tops of the weeds off. We must be anti-racist. We must go further. We must be willing to dig down and get to the roots of the division that divide us. You see, if we did that, I mean, like, what if we did that? What if the church was the place where healing for our nation was happening? where people were coming together across the lines that divide us, across political lines and pandemic lines and racial lines? What if the, what if the church was that place where the things that divide the world were not dividing us? I mean, what kind of a testimony would that be? What kind of a statement would that make to this world? I mean, wouldn't it represent the power of Jesus in such a wonderful and amazing way? It won't happen not unless we are willing to dig down deep together. So let me ask you today as we go, are you willing to do some gardening? Are you willing to dig down deep and pull up some roots that are still growing in your life? Let me ask it on a personal level. Where in your life do you need to do the hard, long, intentional work of partnering with Jesus to put some sinful roots to death in your heart? To put some sinful roots to death. Where do you need to do that personally? And also relationally, corporately, as a church and as a nation and as a people, do we together need to do some deep weeding so that the deeps, the roots of division no longer have the power to pop up amongst us. Friends, let's raise the sails of transformation in our minds together. Let's allow the implications of the gospel to truly start to do the deep work in us that God longs for it to do. Friends, let's together set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Amen? Amen. I hope that you're encouraged today. God bless you. And we'll see you next week.